So please open your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 2. This morning, our sermon is Judges, prologue 2, part 2. My hope is that we'll finish the second and last prologue of Judges this morning. We'll be covering verses, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 16, through chapter 3, verse 6. By way of introduction, I want to remind you of how we ended last week in Judges. We ended on the striking declaration regarding the Israelites in chapter 2, verse 15, the very last sentence, which read, they were in terrible distress. This, This word distress, we're talking about a word that can also be translated as torment or as tied up and bound. It's something that had ensnared them. It's something that had grabbed hold of them. It gives us a sense they are trapped in a horrible situation. But we must realize the situation was entirely of their own making. And if we look back at the end of chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, follow along as I remind you of what the Israelites had done. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. This last verse, verse 14, gives us an incredible image of divine fury on the part of the Lord God. Kindled means burned. Or raged, his anger, God's anger raged, burned against Israel. Literally in the Hebrew, what it says is Yahweh's nose burned. Imagine someone so enraged that hot breath is pouring out of their nostrils. That's the image that we have in the ancient Hebrew. However, we must realize that this is a fulfillment of what God had promised his people. He swore to Israel that if they disobeyed his commandments and broke the covenant he had made with them, he would set his face against them. He told them this and it was recorded in Leviticus 16, 17. They knew exactly what had happened. God always warns of his judgment before he enacts it. They were well warned. But think of this. This divine anger that we read about displays God's faithfulness to his word. God had said he would do this, and thus he did do it. It quickly brings us to the first point I want to make, which is God is always faithful. Always. And as his people, we too should be faithful. So really, it is impossible for God to be unfaithful. 
Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is the first line of what's called the Shema, which means to hear or listen. And since it's impossible for God to be unfaithful, and we see from the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, first verse, since God is one, theologians speak of this when they talk about the simplicity of God. That is, God is indivisible. Not invisible, indivisible. Remember the Pledge of Allegiance when our kids always stumbled on that indivisible. I always said invisible. So I just wanted to be clear. I'm not, I hope I didn't say invisible. Indivisible. He's uncompounded. He's uncomplex. What that means is he's not made of parts. Um, a really good explanation that I, that I came across uh, is from a very notable 19th century Reformed theologian, William G.T. Shedd. And he wrote in dogmatic, his dogmatic theology, he explained the simplicity. And Shedd said, simplicity does not belong to angels and men. They are complex, being composed of soul and body, two substances, not one. They are not embodied in mere spirit. The angels, like the redeemed after the resurrection, have a spiritual body which does not mean a body made of spirit, but one adapted to a spiritual world. So that compares God as simple and us and the angels as complex. Going further into this theological um, idea, God alone has what's called a seity, which means he is of himself. Uh, Shed says of this character of God, that the ground of his being is in his self. He doesn't get anything from outside of his self. Shed goes on to say that God is the uncaused being, and in this respect differs from all other beings. So God is the only simple being. So God is one. Do you see how that fits in? This idea informs us that there can be no contradictions when it comes to God. Unlike men and angels who can exhibit faithfulness for a time and then become unfaithful, or being faithful in some things and unfaithful in others simultaneously, faithfulness and unfaithfulness cannot exist together in God. And although the Shema was not intended as a theological statement about God, we must realize that every statement made about God in the Bible is his revelation of himself and necessarily then becomes a theological statement for us. So the Shema, from the, the perspective of the ancient Israelite, can be thought of as a loyalty oath to the Lord God. And really, it's not unlike the Lord's Prayer in the context of the New Covenant for us. And when we go to the second line of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 5, it reads, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. 
So just as the Son of God's incarnation, death and resurrection, brought the faithful people of God under the old covenant into the new covenant through his atoning blood and made the Lord's prayer, which he taught his disciples and us, a thanksgiving, a petition, and a supplication for us, the immutability or the unchanging nature of God means that the loyalty, love, and steadfast dedication to the Lord our God expressed in the Shema can and should also be expressed by God's people who are now under the new covenant. It applies to us. We can say that. Although we differentiate the covenants, they've all been brought into the new covenant. Everything applicable in the old, to some extent, has been carried into the new as far as our relationship um, with God. So getting back to the period of the judges and what we have read just now, a reminder of what the Israelites had done and what they had not done in disobedience to God, in judgment for this great sin of Israel, In verse 14 of chapter 2, we read that the Lord God gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. This is also a fulfillment of what God had swore he would do. Again, reading from Leviticus 26.22, God warned Israel. He said, I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. So your road shall be deserted. It'll be so dangerous that people won't even go out and try and travel. So these plunderers that we're reading about in Judges who raid, loot, and destroy, they rip everything of value from their prey and leave them for dead. They behave as wild beasts, not as men who are created in the image and likeness of God. Paul uses this imagery, this beast imagery, um, for his opponents who fought against him in, in Ephesus. Paul writes of this in 1 Corinthians 15.32. And Paul says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, at this point in time, in the first century, The Romans had not come up with that very entertaining sport of wild animals in a coliseum and feeding, you know, humans or Christians to the beasts. So Paul cannot be referring to that. That's something that didn't happen for a century or more um, later. So what is Paul talking about? We're going to look at that. We're going to explore it a little bit and, and see the connections here. But this quickly brings us into our second point which is that our adoption as sons of God, chosen by God the Father, through the atonement of Christ the Son, applied to each of us individually by the Holy Spirit, is the only means by which we can be fully in the image and likeness of God. And I want to explore that, and explain exactly what the image and likeness means and how we obtain it. This is the only way to be truly and fully 
human through God, through God's salvation of us, through the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, to be man or Adam as God created man to be. As our first parents were created to be in the paradise of God, so shall we all be who are in Christ when things are made new again, when our Lord returns, when creation is restored to its original ideal. In the meantime, between the fall and the restoration, the time that we live in, the deviation that sin has brought to man's image-bearing is bestial. God's creatures, human and angelic, when in active rebellion against God, become the antithesis of what they are intended to be. They become like beasts. Beasts in the sense that they senselessly kill, ruin, and destroy. Beasts in the sense that they act as though unthinking and without logic. Beasts in the sense that their violence towards God and his creation is instinctive. And wild beasts, interestingly, are one of God's four disastrous acts of judgment that he warns of, along with the sword, famine, and pestilence. And this is attested to in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God warns of these four disastrous acts in Ezekiel 14.21 and again in Revelation 6.8. It applies to all of God's people. It applies to all times. In this, we find a double entendre or a dual meaning. We've seen, and we went over the, we've gone over this in the Wednesday night Genesis class. There's descriptions of wild animals in desolate places. And we see it especially in, in Isaiah is a good place for it. Um, in Isaiah chapter 13, when the, the oracle, the judgment against Babylon is spoken of, there, there, are, there are terms, bestial terms of what will happen to Babylon upon judgment and the creatures that will dwell there. Well, in the underlying Hebrew, there's a dual meaning to these, to these names of these beasts, and they're connected to spiritual wickedness, to demonic entities. There's this connotation, besides the fact that the land of Babylon will be desolate, but there is such an evilness and wickedness there that there's this evil spiritual connotation to it. So really, we should not find this surprising if we think about it. Most of us, most Christians, are very aware of Paul's teaching in Ephesians 6, 12, where he writes, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. These evil spiritual beings that Paul writes about here in Ephesians 6.12 were not exclusive to his time of Christian missionary work. No, these spiritual forces of evil have been, 
are now and will be active in their opposition to God and God's people until they meet their final judgment in the lake of fire, as the book of Revelation reveals to us. So it's vital, I would say, that we realize that our human opponents are, in a sense, a mirror of our spiritual opponents. The opposition is very real in both realms. It's vital we realize this because we must expect opposition on both these fronts, the worldly and the spiritual. This should be evident to us when we think on how the Bible uses beast imagery for satanic forces and then how Paul uses it for human opponents that he faced in Ephesus that we read about in 1 Corinthians 15. These images are used for both. They apply to both. And even though when we read Judges, it doesn't reveal to us the nature of the plunderers who plundered Israel. We really, we don't know who they are. But we can know, based on Scripture's adaptation, that the human plunderers, which I think they are human plunderers, were mirrors of demonic plunderers, both delighting and taking from God's people whatever they can. Yet in spite of this, listen to what the Lord did next in light of Israel's numerous rebellious acts that we just recalled. And here we're in our new section, Judges chapter 2, verse 16, as we wrap up the second prologue. In spite of what Israel has done in their disobedience, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Even though utterly unfaithful and undeserving, Israel is the object of divine mercy. Israel groans because of affliction and oppression. We're going to read about that in a little bit. But there's no mention of repentance on Israel's part. So where do these judges, these deliverers, these military leaders, where do they come from? The text tells us they are raised up by the Lord. They are established. They are set up by the Lord God. This is an action by God and God alone. So when God's people enter perilous times, and I think back on that day 21 years ago, some of you um, weren't, weren't here, but undoubtedly have heard of it. The rest of us remember that day and how shocking it was. I was a motorcycle sergeant then, and I remember being in the traffic bureau office and watching this on the TV and getting a call from downtown ordering that all the officers, you know, hit the streets, get out in the field. We have no idea what's coming next. And I recall that our church, not this church, another church, called for a prayer meeting. And I had never seen a prayer meeting attended like that one was, brothers and sisters. Maybe you experienced that also. But we realized, everyone realized, these are perilous times. It hit home, didn't it? And where did we turn? We turned to the Lord God, as we should. But these perilous times, 
How many see what is approaching? Some do, and maybe only a relative few. Many people are complacent. They're distracted by the care and toil of everyday life. They're unprepared to deal with human wild beasts like Paul faced in Ephesus. Plunderers who howl and slaver to rip everything from them. When the plunderers are so suddenly upon them that their roads become deserted due to the danger, time because of, becomes of the essence. Think about that. That's not a time to think, oh, we need to train and prepare to deal with that. No, there was no time. The wolves were at the door. To start when the wolves are at the door is too little and too late. But at this dark time for Israel, as in all other times, God had prepared beforehand. I think that's what's remarkable. He had prepared the means and the men to deliver his people. God can do this, and only God can do this, because God alone is omniscient. Even though we talk about spiritual forces of evil, realize they are not omniscient. They are not like the Lord God. They are not simple. They are complex, like us. They are made up of parts. They are, they, they are restricted in what they can do. They are limited in their power. Never should we think we have a dualistic struggle for power between the forces and good, forces of evil as evenly matched as Hollywood often will try and tell us in their stories. No, not at all. The Lord God is sovereign over all things, even over the evil that we may have to face and the evil that Israel faced. God alone is active, while all other creatures, human and angelic, are reactive. We can only respond to what we are presented with, which is God's sovereign decree. Think about in the times throughout human history, in the times of crises, it's mind-boggling, I think, how many obscure and anonymous men have been standing in the wings, off stage, and unnoticed by everyone, until just the right moment that they seem somehow prepared beforehand for presents itself. And these men have no idea that they are being prepared. They have no idea what's coming. It's not that God has made a revelation to these people. In some cases, of course, in the Bible, we do see that God reveals to his prophets things. But I'm not talking about prophets. I'm talking about the things when historians look at certain, certain times in our history and they say, well, it's amazing that this group of men existed at this time to come together and save a nation, save a country, save a people. The Civil War, the American Civil War, the War of Secession is an example if you read about that. The Second World War is an example. Historians look at the military academy classes that graduated right before these massive conflicts and are astounded at the men that were there at that time that were able to respond to the call. Well, it shouldn't be uh, you know, a shock to us. God's in control of history. 
He's in control of this period in the judges. And that's what's important for us to remember. This is the case in Canaan at the time of the judges. So we're still in the prologue. We're wrapping up the prologue, like I said, the second prologue. And and remember, the purpose of a prologue is to give context and an overview. So that's what we're getting as we read this. And we go on in verses 16 to 23, and what these verses, this excerpt, what it serves as is is an overview of what we're going to see in the rest of the book of Judges in the main accounts. This then is how the events will unfold. Follow along with me as I read. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So this overview, we can see in this overview the cycle of sin and apostasy that I spoke about in our introduction to the book. The cycle is apostasy, followed by judgment, then a crying out to Yahweh. Yahweh raises up a deliverer, then there's deliverance, and the land is given rest, safety, and security. Then the deliverer dies, as all humans must die. And the cycle starts over again. We should find this disturbing and unsettling, I ask that you think long and hard on this. Apostasy, rebellion, sin, occurring over and over again. No relief, no way to break free of it. Knowing that this was, is, and how it will be forevermore ad nauseum. This is the true vicious cycle, if there ever was one. Fallen man, in rejecting the one true God, has surprisingly realized this trap of sin he is caught in. Maybe not directly, maybe not consciously. But I'm going to give you some examples that show, yes, that that humans do realize this, even though... In our fallen state, we'll try and cover it up. We'll try and pretend everything's fine. But no, we know everything's not fine. This 
cycle of sin. The Lord God, in his infinite mercy, has placed limits upon it. And here in Judges, this cycle is limited to about 200 years. Although we're going to see this cycle is a downward spiral in Israel. It doesn't continue on the same plane. It sinks, and it sinks, and it sinks. And we know God in his infinite grace has given us a, us a means to escape this cycle, do we not? That's our Lord Jesus Christ, the salvation that is offered through his atoning blood. But think about this. This potentially infinite cycle of apostasy has been recognized by the Hindus and the Buddhists with their wheel of time, with the infinite, unending reincarnations. The Greek Stoic philosophers recognized this. They came up with this idea of repeating stages of transformation. But they never repeat enough to transform to something that gets you out of the repeating stages of transformation. You are trapped in them. And I think the best description, which I find so striking and really shocking, is that of the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. 19th century German philosopher. Most of you have heard of him. He came up with this concept, although he didn't invent it, but he became consumed by it. And he called it eternal recurrence. And here's a man, as you undoubtedly know, who saw human existence without God because, as he declared, God is dead and we killed him. He denies God, but he saw human existence as eternally recurring. What did he mean by that, eternally recurring? Exactly. Every pain, hurt, and sorrow repeated again and again into infinity without deviation, without any hope of a new thing or new experience. No meaning to it just over and over again. Now here's a man who declared himself a God. When you say, I have killed God, he is no more, you are declaring that you are God. That's what this man did. He was an evil genius. I had to read Nietzsche in college, in university, in grad school. He's an amazing writer, and that's what's so frightening about this evilness when there's intellect and genius attached to it. And there's people that are trapped by this. And the only thing that will save them is the gospel. But it's interesting how Nietzsche presented his idea of eternal recurrence. This arch-atheist, this self-proclaimed God-killer, this paragon of the human will, this is what he wrote about this. What if some day or night a demon were to steal after you into your loneliness, loneliness, excuse me, your loneliest loneliness and say to you, this life as you now live it and have lived it, you will have to live once more and innumerable times more. And there will be nothing new in it, but every pain and every joy and every thought and sigh and everything unutterably small or great in your life will have to return to you. 
all in the same succession and sequence. The eternal hourglass of existence is turned upside down again and again, and you with it, you speck of dust. So scholars of philosophy characterize this as a thought experiment by Nietzsche, but I think it's more than that. I think Nietzsche's being very honest where this idea came from. I think this was a demon-driven concept that came to him. This consumed Nietzsche at the end of his, of his life as a philosopher. His life went on, but it broke his mind, completely snapped his mind. He had to be institutionalized. He was reduced to a point where he could no longer communicate. He was as if no longer human, and he died in an insane asylum. This is what the world has to offer. And you know what? Nietzsche is right. If we think about this cycle of sin, if, we, if there is no God, if there is no salvation, what Nietzsche saw is a rebirth, like the Hindus and the Buddhists, except that it would never, ever change. Every pain that you felt in this life would be repeated to infinity, ad nauseum. You would never escape it. These examples that I've mentioned just now demonstrate that fallen man is well aware of the snare of sin and that he of himself is powerless to escape its cycle. Even though these explanations are offered by other religions and by philosophy, there is no answer given to how to break free other than we got to try to do better. we got to do this, we got to do that. It's all our working. God's word reveals to us that that is simply impossible for us to do. So we come now to the end of the prologue of Judges. Follow along with me. I'm going to read the last part here, Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal-Hermon as far as Libo-Hamath. They were for testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. So in this end of the prologue, we find a unifying theme. And that is that the remaining nations were a test for Israel. How was it that there were nations left when Joshua died? Well, they were left by Yahweh, who did not drive them out quickly by giving them into the hand of Joshua. We read this in chapter 2, verse 23. And who is it that is to be tested? Verse 1 of chapter 3 tells us those Israelites who had not known 
the wars of Canaan. Now, known, remember we talked about that, this Hebrew word yada. And, and it's, it's not an intellectual knowledge. Remember, it's, a, it's experiential. It's experienced. So it's not that these, this new generation did not know there was war. They knew, undoubtedly, just like we know there were wars before our generation, but they had not experienced the war. That's what the text is saying. And what is the purpose of the test? So that they might know, again, yada, so they might know, experience war, to teach war to those who had not known yada, who had not known it before. And why were these nations left to test Israel? This is what verse 4 says. And we've got to unpack this a little bit because we don't want to get this wrong. Verse 4, chapter 3 says, so that Yahweh would know, excuse me, Yada, whether they would keep his commands. Now we know that God is omniscient, right? God is all-knowing. So would God then know whether Israel was going to keep his commands? Well, most certainly God knew that. So that's not what it's saying. It's not like God needs, I need to leave these evil, wicked people here and let Israel go against them and I'm going to see you know, what's going to happen. No, it's that God knew what they would do, but Israel needed to know what Israel was going to do. That's the purpose of a test. As Daniel shared with us this morning at 10 a.m., when, when God is testing us, never for a moment think that God does not know or what's going to happen or that God does not have us in his hands. He does. The test is not so he knows us. He does know us to the very, very core of our being, far beyond what we know. The test is so that we will know. And in this case, the test is to show Israel whether they will be loyal to the Lord God or not. But we're told what the result of the test is. The Israelites did not drive out the Canaanites as the Lord commanded. They lived among the Canaanites. They intermarried with them and served their gods. In short, Israel failed the test that the Lord God had put them to. This brings us to our third point, our last point. Man is incapable of rescuing himself from ensnarement in the cycle of sin. This is what we've been talking about for the last several minutes. And this is a central point in the story of the judges of Israel. God raises up human deliverers. They're able to provide respite for a few years from the oppression of the enemies. But it is temporary. It is always temporary. And then the people launch themselves right back into their apostasy by serving the Baals and the Astaroths and bowing down to them. John Calvin said it very accurately. He said, the heart of man is a perpetual idol factory. This illustrates why we find ourselves trapped in sin. This is our sin nature. This is how we are apart from the transformation that God can bring us. Natural or unregenerate man is attracted to sin like a moth to the flame. 
And like the moth that's burned up by that flame, man is destroyed by the sin that attracts him. And even though the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them, yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. So what's the cause of this? Well, sociologists tell us that man is a moral creature. Every civilization and culture has morals and ethics and expects people to abide by them. But no one can for long. The Lord God gave Moses ten words on two tablets. And in this vain attempt, human attempt to keep the law, every nation has volume upon volume upon volume of law upon law. And we keep writing laws. And we keep breaking them. Humans have failed so badly, some people want to give up. Some say you can't legislate morality, so why even try? Run up the white flag. Perhaps the sociologists are wrong. And that's a little bit of sarcasm. They are definitely wrong. Man is not a moral creature. Man is a sinful creature who realizes, even though in his unregenerate state, he will not admit it, he realizes how far, how far short he is from the righteousness of his creator. In his sinful state, what is man morally? And here I borrow from um, a... Uh, a particular Baptist preacher from the 19th century in England, uh, James Smith. In fact, he was the immediate predecessor to Charles Spurgeon at the New Park Street Chapel. And he wrote a wonderful piece about this. He entitled it A Serious Inquiry. This is what he says man is morally. He is dreadfully and totally depraved. He is God's enemy full of enmity, bitter hatred against God, full of evil principles and evil passions. Man is wicked. He is dead in sin. As a walking dead man, he has no will to do good, nor does he have the power to do good. Man is perverse. His eyes, his ears, and his heart are closed against God. If God requires something, man determines not to do it. If God prohibits something, Man immediately desires it. There is everything in man to offend the eyes of God's holiness and to grieve God's loving heart. When we consider our fallen state, we cry out with David in praise of our merciful God. What is man, O Lord, that you are mindful of him? So we are powerless to rise above our sin. We cannot lift ourselves out of our fallen state. But God has decreed that his people not be left in this state. And just as in the days of the judges, God has raised up a deliverer for us, but not a temporary deliverer who is flawed and as sinful as we are ourselves, but a perfect deliverer who has and will forevermore break this cycle of sin that we are ensnared by and who will save us from the hand of our enemies. And the long-awaited year of jubilee shall finally come. Like Leviticus 25.10 says, 
You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. And this gospel bell that rings shall never crack. This perfect liberty, true liberty from bondage to the cruelest of masters, which is sin, comes only through Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, Jesus answered to some of his critics and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. What, is God, what God has done by Christ through the Holy Spirit, this new freedom, is absolutely transformational. So much so that we can hardly imagine it. Even Jesus' beloved disciple, John, admits that this idea is beyond his knowing. It is, it's that wonderful. And, and John wrote in his first epistle, 3, 2, Beloved, we are sons of God now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is what I want you to consider. The seemingly hopeless days of the judges. Those days prepared the way for the coming of our king, Lord Jesus. Even though the world and the evil powers that want to control it try their best to convince you that the future is dark, Christ has changed everything. Realize that nothing is the same since God the Son came in human flesh and paid the price for our rebellion. For those of us in Christ, now adopted into the heavenly ranks as sons of the Most High, inhabitants, excuse me, inheritance of the riches, all of the riches of the kingdom. What lies ahead is glorious beyond description. We should never lose sight of that, brethren. Join me as we close in prayer. Oh, Father, we give thanks for your mercy. We give thanks for the hope that you alone can provide, Father. We give thanks that your word assures us of this and that your people that have gone before us, that they can serve as an example for good and not good, but that we can see the ramifications, the consequences of obedience and disobedience, Father. I pray that you send the Holy Spirit upon us continually, constantly, Lord, to guide us, to help us to be obedient to you, that we may be faithful servants to you, Lord. We give thanks that we can gather together, Father. We give thanks for the unity that we have in Christ Jesus, that we are loved equally and that we love back our Lord and our Savior, Father, and that we have a place where we can come together to express this. Father, I pray for those who are watching online, those that may watch on sermon audio, Father, that they be assured of this also, and that they, if they do not know, and if anyone here does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, as the Lord of their life, that they'll realize that God is speaking to them through his word and through the poor preachers that stand before them who speak this word, and they recognize that God is calling them. 
Father, I ask your blessings upon all of us in this coming week. Father, keep us, keep us safe until we can gather again. Bless my brethren as they go forth in their week to work and to school and to toil and to, and to do the things that we must do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.